Beyond the, Beyond the Headlines. This is World Insight. Hello and welcome to World Insight with me, Tian Wei. Chinese science fiction has already earned its fame on the global stage after Liu Cixin won the Hugo Award in 2015. This year, another Chinese sci-fi writer, Han Ya, received his honor. His work, The Space-Time Painter, combines future and history, bringing the readers a fantasy of how the famous painting A Thousand Leagues of Rivers and Mountains was created by a space-time traveler. He talked to me recently, sharing his views towards future and history, fictions and reality. So congratulations, Haya. You wrote a novelette, and that is about history and the future. I really wonder, between AI and history, which one interests you more? I'm very interested in both. Relatively speaking, history is something that's already passed or happened while AI is something that we're in the middle of. It's still in its infancy. To me, both AI and history symbolize the fruit of our civilization. History bears witness to our past achievements, and AI might very well herald our future. For us, both of them are a reflection or a result of our civilizational progress. Sometimes it's all about how we chose, how we made our choice, isn't it? Whether it's about AI or history. While AI might seem cutting edge and paving the way for our future, history is not just about the past. History is also related to the future. It's not static. Even though it changes slowly, it's always evolving. Everything we experience today and in the future will one day be part of history. Perhaps AI will leave an indelible mark on our historical timeline becoming a significant event. It's something none of us can predict. You actually try to combine an ancient painting with the science fiction that you are writing about. Tell me, how did you make that choice? Why that specific painting? Why that specific painter? The painting, Thousand Miles of Mountains and Rivers, is a very emblematic work. It's rich in detail. At the scroll's end, there's an inscription that meticulously chronicles the historical events of the time. Three individuals stand out in this context. The first is Emperor Huizong of the Northern Song Dynasty, celebrated for his prowess in calligraphy and painting. Another pivotal character is Chai Jing, a powerful minister to whom the emperor bestowed this painting. Chai Jing is a notable figure in Chinese history, not just for his political influence, but also for his exceptional calligraphy. He's been portrayed in many films and TV series, often reminiscent of the character Pang Tai Shi, or Grandmaster Pang, in dramas featuring Justice Bao Zheng. The act of Song Emperor Huizong gifting this painting to his subordinate Chai Jing is significant. So, Chai Jing undoubtedly, filled with pride, documented the entire historical backdrop, including his own standing on the painting. 
Though the inscription is concise, it's rich in information, capturing the intricate dynamics between rulers and their officials during the Northern Song Dynasty. What intrigues me most is the revelation that such a monumental painting was the creation of an 18-year-old. Based on my research, I surmise that this young artist had an extraordinary background. If he could craft such a masterpiece at 18, he likely began his formal training at a very tender age, possibly within a royal art institution. This hypothesis challenges some of the historical accounts I've come across. I'm convinced there is something extraordinary about his life. His debut was nothing short of breathtaking producing a national treasure at such a young age. I'm deeply intrigued by him, yet after this remarkable feat, he vanished from the annals of history, much like a meteor streaking across the sky, never to be seen again. Given his prodigious entrance into the art world, I'm convinced there is a captivating tale lurking in the shadows of his life. But with no historical records to shed light on his journey, I'm left yearning to piece together and complete his enigmatic life story. Have you achieved your goal? Uh, yes, I think so. It seems that you have a, a lot of response coming from the readers. That's why you won the Hugo Award, isn't it? This work, perhaps best described as a novella, has many areas that aren't fully fleshed out. In terms of its composition, is not without flaws and leaves some room for improvement. Nevertheless, I feel it has successfully captured the emotional release I intended. What I've tried to convey is a reflection on the choices one makes throughout life, or perhaps the decisions dictated by the times one lives in. In the era of the Northern Song Dynasty, the painter's life was fraught with challenges. Despite his tragic fate, he exerted every effort to change his destiny. Even though he failed, I believe the mere act of trying is commendable. Scientific fiction writers are even more honest than writers as a whole. You know, they try to put in into a science fiction something they really feel about life and portray it in such a wonderful way. I don't know, for example, Liu Cixin talking about Cultural Revolution, how Jing Fang talk about how she feels about megacities in China. And you are trying to bring part of the history through science fiction, talk about the life and fate of a young person. So to me, that's more real than the novel itself, you know? A driving force behind writing science fiction, I believe, stems from a deep-seated curiosity about the future or the unknown. I see curiosity as an innate human trait. We all have it in our youth, but as we grow and grapple with life's realities, this curiosity might diminish. However, science fiction writers, without a doubt, tend to retain the sense of wonder more than most. I think many of us approach our work with a childlike heart, making us perhaps more genuine and honest than many adults. I think this might be the reason. When it comes to our works and discussions within the realm of science fiction, I believe we are very candid. We don't hold back when critiquing or evaluating a piece. Amongst ourselves, we often engage in frank talks. A story one of us might deem excellent might be critiqued heavily by another. Others may point out its flaws. 
I think this open dialogue is not only acceptable, but also a testament to our sincerity. They are going to critique your work in front of you. Before this, I had no personal interactions with Liu Qixin or Hao Jingfang. Despite considering myself a devoted sci-fi aficionado, I've never met or talked to Ms. Hao Jingfang. As for Liu Qixin, I've read all of his works. He personally presented me with the award recently. And during that occasion, we had a brief conversation. He offered some encouraging words and later provided advice on how to transport the trophy. He also shared his own experiences. I took his advice. But beyond that, we hadn't really talked very much. They are both well-established writers, whereas I am more of a novice who has just started to gain recognition. You have been uh, following works of many others, for example, uh, Liu Cixin, Hao Jingfang, uh, Ted Jiang, and many others. How would you how would you characterize you know different generations of science fiction writers that are popular today? I have a myriad of favorite works, especially within the realm of sci-fi. Speaking of Liu Qixin, I'm captivated by his expansive imagination, the profound awe one feels towards monumental phenomena akin to a deep-seated astonishment rooted in our very genes when faced with scientific wonders is something I find entirely relatable. For instance, on a recent trip to Chengdu, I visited the Sanxing Dui Museum. Standing beneath the ancient bronze holy tree, a testament to a bygone civilization, I felt a deep reverence, a connection to the annals of human history. Sci-fi works, particularly those by Liu Qixin, evoke a similar sense of wonder, but on a cosmic scale, often set against vast backdrops of planets, galaxies, or the grand tapestry of human civilization. This awe-inspiring quality is what draws me to his works. As for Ted Chiang, whom you mentioned earlier, paired with his philosophical reflections, his works are deeply thought-provoking. Even though we delve into the same realm of fiction and our speculative musings might seem trivial to a more advanced civilization, I believe it's not just the tangible marvels, but also the groundbreaking philosophical insights that matter. This is where Ted Chiang's works truly resonate with me. Regarding the novel you mentioned, The Grass Eating Blood, it's among my favorite short stories. It's penned with a stark, almost documentary-like tone, weaving surreal history that culminates in a biting satirical conclusion. I heard you are a very principled writer. You devote a certain period of your life every day to writing. And besides that, you have your own career. You also have a good life uh, in terms of enjoying your life. So how did you make that happen? I think it's a result of having discipline. I always believe that personal freedom has its boundaries. To have greater freedom, I think the most direct way is to first impose certain restraints upon oneself. In the pursuit of my goals, I set plans and schedules for myself, determining how I manage my work and personal life. Beyond that, I decide how to pursue my hobbies. If I'm genuinely passionate about my profession and my pastimes, I'm more than willing to make sacrifices for them. 
While this journey can be strenuous and not always as liberating as one might hope, I view it as my path to a higher form of freedom. How to find freshness in your creation, in your writing? Because so many in front of you, you know, in throughout the past 200 years, they've already tried everything. How to find something fresh? It's indeed a common challenge in contemporary sci-fi writing. I might conceive an idea, only to later realize it's been previously explored, leading to potential overlaps. But I believe as long as science is evolving, given that sci-fi is rooted in science, we'll always have a fresh influx of material. We should always keep an open mind, being receptive to other genres like mystery, fantasy, or even blending in elements of our traditional culture and historical insights. These diverse approaches are avenues for innovation and new thoughts. My sci-fi works aren't just about aliens or interstellar wars. The realm of science fiction is diverse and multifaceted. I believe that embracing it with an inclusive mindset, a plethora of unique perspectives will naturally emerge. So we are in an interesting period of time. We are in an echo chamber as a result of social media. Also, it's a fragmented world we are embracing virtually. So how do you as a writer, as a science fiction writer, looking at this reality? We can make our own choices. In many science fiction works, including those by Liu Qixin, notably Taking Care of Gods and The Wages of Humanity, the writer depicts a world where human beings live in a metaphorical cradle. As our technology reaches unparalleled heights, alien machinery can cater to our every need. In such a scenario, humans might not need to lift a finger, living from birth to death in a perpetual controlled greenhouse or cradle. If our development trajectory continues unchecked in this direction, our civilization could face a potential decline. If we reach a point where we lose the initiative to seek out and discern information, it would indeed signal a profound crisis for human civilization. However, I remain optimistic. Every living being has both inertia and competitiveness. Everyone has a fair share of laziness. As you mentioned earlier, after a long day at work, one might want to rest. Even if I'm a very disciplined person, there can be lapses into laziness. Yet we still try to make choices. We're living in a wonderful time where science and civilization have made significant strides. Ancient records, including our poetry and writings, underscore the virtues of perseverance and the pursuit of knowledge, for instance, as reflected in the saying, long is my road and far is the journey, high and low, up and down, or Lu Xun's writings that suggest even if everyone is asleep, there will always be someone who shouts out. Even if most succumb to darkness, there will always be a voice of resistance. I believe our civilization's history is filled with such brave souls. As long as such individuals exist, we'll overcome any crisis. However, if we lack this courage, our civilization might face decline or hit a dead end. How would you be able to, you know, live your daily life as a young professional in the hustle-bustling city of Shenzhen and be able to also concentrate every day 
on some writing that you really enjoy. The essence of all of it is maintaining focus. In my daily routine, I compartmentalize specific periods for different tasks. There are dedicated hours for my professional duties, while my passion for writing is pursued during my leisure moments. So this is how I balance the two in terms of time. When I work, I'm fully engaged. And once I finish, I set it aside in my free time and immerse myself wholeheartedly in my personal pursuits. For me, this represents a fluid transition between the two distinct mindsets, offering a therapeutic respite for the brain. This is World Insight, still to come. The American professor Roger Ames, the humanities chair at Peking University, talks about the relevance of Confucianism today. Beyond the, Beyond the Headlines, this is World Insight. Welcome back. This is World Insight with me, Tian Wei. Much of Chinese culture from ancient times to the present day is rooted in Confucianism. It inspires us to seek mutual learning. It speaks of the relationship between mankind and nature and more. Against a more complicated global backdrop today, China looks deep into its traditional culture for answers. Professor Roger Ames, the Humanities Chair at Peking University, who is also a Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at the University of Hawaii, has devoted decades of studying Confucianism. I had a quite enlightening conversation with him on the influence of Confucianism even today. Take a listen. While you are doing research about Confucius and Confucianism right now in China. You are also at the same time feeling the pulse of the changes of China today. Yeah, it, 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 that, that any kind of a, a purist, conservative Chinese culture is really anathema to the flourishing of Chinese culture. That Chinese culture can only flourish when it's progressive when it's evolutionary, mm. when new ideas are coming in. The, the whole idea of he or butong is, is not synchronic, it's diachronic. It's all about process. It's all about life, sheng sheng lun. You know, I mean, the, the idea that um, the, the, the first philosophy of the Chinese tradition that you find in the Book of Changes is this idea of life. Very interesting that we can go back into the documents to find the root of a lot of the, the thoughts that are still, you know, the most important components of what we are today. Right, right. I think that that's where Chinese culture is remarkable, and that is that these ancient texts are very much a part of, of contemporary uh, life, you know, that references are made to them. The, the, the phenomenon of Chengyu, you know, these um, four character sayings that are so important in the Chinese language, other languages don't have that. And those, those um, sayings really are rooted in the culture. They're not, they're not a stitch in time saves nine, you know, some kind of silly uh, expression. They really, they're all about culture, they're about the canonical texts, they're about poetry and so on. Where do you see China is looking for inspirations? I think that um, what China is really coming to understand clearly is that its future is rooted very heavily in its traditional culture. And it, it's, it's become sort of really, I think, an important commitment. We live in kind of a, an asymmetrical point, point in time. 
Whatever we have to say about China, the economic uh, development of China is unprecedented in human history. We've never seen anything. If this happened in Belgium, it would be in incredible. But to happen in a country like China, a 58-kilometer bridge from Hong Kong to Macau to Zhuhai, I mean, what has happened in China is, is, is just absolutely remarkable. You, where did that come from? That came from stability in the world, you know, stability that in, in many ways was, was provided by uh, America and Europe and, you know, after the Second World War. Everything is interdependent. So in this particular moment, there's this asymmetry. Prior to pandemic, we had 350,000 Chinese students in America, maybe 15,000 American students in China. You had this economic and political rise of China that was only seen by the outside world, a world that is dominated by a kind of liberalism. It was only seen maybe around 2005. 2005 was the year that my colleagues stopped coming to visit me on bicycles and came to visit me in cars. You know, that was the, the that's my marker, you know. So Your personal diary. My personal diary, yeah. And so, um, so it's not surprising, you know, that the rise of China, seen from the perspective of a world dominated by liberalism, has startled the world. And being startled, you know, you have this kind of, of uh, anti-China uh, media, politics, and so on. But, but the, the, the growth of China is not going to stop. Uh, China's not going away. Uh, the growth of China is, 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 not, is, is going to continue. And, um, and we're going to have to learn to have a different relationship with China. What China is doing is it's sort of focusing its uh, um, growth in Central Asia, on, in Southeast Asia, Sri Lanka, you know, this Idai Lu, this uh, Belt, Belt and Road Initiative, yeah. Um, and it's kind of just letting the Western powers getting a better relationship with Europe, too, so. What is the real essence of confidence? Yeah, no, I, from in, in the Western philosophical tradition, I come out of pragmatism. And pragmatism is simply to ask the question, what difference does it make? What difference does it make? And so I think that philosophers certainly have the responsibility to understand the histories of our cultural traditions. But I think once we uh, do that, then the most important question we have to have, we have to ask, that has to do with confidence, is can I endorse this idea? Does this idea, will this idea make a difference in the modern world? To one example that I would give is that the concept of the discrete individual, whether it's at an individual level, a corporate level, or in terms of nation states, that this has become you know, a zero-sum way of thinking in a world where everything is interdependent and where if we don't work together, we won't survive. And so how do we get past that? In the Confucian tradition, a person is not a discrete individual. A person is constituted by their relationships and family and community and so on. This way of thinking about what it means to be a person what it means to be a corporation, what it means to be a nation-state, is a better model than the one that, we, uh, that prevails today. 
And so, can I endorse this idea? I do endorse this idea. Do I have confidence in this idea? I do have confidence in this idea. On the other hand, how much is it still there, the space for mutual learning? I think that that's the challenge of China. You know, I think China has got, you know, this, this, this economic miracle has meant that China has a surplus of infrastructure. It has this, it, it can change the world in a way that um, it has changed China itself. And so with this kind of taking China's infrastructure to the world, you have a political component, you have an economic component, but the challenge is cultural and whether or not there can be cultural understanding with the different countries, that, the different traditions that, that China is encountering. I think this is really the, the that cultural element, I think is really the, the, the essence of whether, of whether or not this can really be successful. Thank you so much, Professor. It's always a pleasure. It's, it's been delightful for me. And that's all the time we have for today. I'm Tian Wei. On behalf of the team, thanks for being with us. Bye.